You are listening to Cortez Radio, CKTZ, 89.5 FM. This is Roy Hales with Cortez Currents. I read in the paper, I heard on the news, all damn world got these mean old blues in this life, in this life, you gotta think for yourself. The forest industry has been in in a tough way for a long time. The, the the boom days of the of the eighties and nineties have come and gone. And over the last decade, you know, groups like the Wilderness Committee talk often about uh, how much old growth forest is lost and how much and how fast we're logging in rare ecosystems. Just as upsetting to me as a Vancouver Islander is 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 what's happening on the employment side. Uh, you have dozens of milks closing in the last decade alone. Uh, BC's lost an average of six jobs every single day in the forest sector, and that's a statistic that should inf- infuriate people. Recently, it's tough, right? You have. A uh, big company on the South Island, Teal Jones, uh, that holds areas like the Walbran. Uh, they've been curtailed for a couple of months now in both second growth and old growth operations. The Western Forest product strike, I believe, will hit the five-month mark at the end of this week. So that's five months of thousands of employees uh, that have been going without paychecks. And, you know, a month before Christmas, this is tough. And then just on Friday, uh, you know, five days, four days ago, uh, you have uh, the second biggest logging company on the island after Western Mosaic announced that they were curtailing uh, kind of indefinitely because of market conditions. So thousands of more people out of work. That was Torrance Cost from the Wilderness Committee, one of the six people I interviewed or emailed for this story, The Crisis in Our Forests. He was also one of the speakers at a joint Sierra Club BC Wilderness Committee event that was to have been held at Campbell River's downtown community centre until the city of Campbell River cancelled it because of safety concerns. So what happened last night? Uh, we're kind of still trying to get to the bottom of it you know almost 24 hours later essentially we had a plan with the city of Campbell River because we were using their venue for our event and we had a plan with them to move ahead with a modified program rather than going ahead with our original presentation given where things are at in the forest industry right now and in terms of a really unprecedented crisis we wanted to open up the discussion and, and essentially have a public dialogue about forestry issues, uh, about what workers and, and, and people in forestry communities are frustrated with. The city had told us that they were okay with that. And then about two hours before the event, they notified us by email and by phone that uh, in consultation with the RCMP, they were pulling the plug and, and cancelling. I asked Ron Bowles, Campbell Rivers, General Manager of Community Development, to read out from a prepared statement. We cancelled it due to public safety concerns. Now we recognize that people had good intentions for last evening's event, and that they were upset that it was cancelled. For them, this was an unpopular decision. But our first duty is to public safety. We made this decision after consultation with the RCMP. We found out the same day that a large number of people were planning to attend and rally. After talking to the RCMP, we realized that on such short notice, we could not provide appropriate security 
that would ensure safe and respectful event. Now, forestry jobs and environmental protection are urgent concerns in our community. These concerns are linked to the livelihoods and local quality of life. City facilities can provide public space where people can gather, share information, and have these important discussions. And for every event in city facilities, our top priority is to ensure safe and respectful behavior based on the number of people that were attending, the strong potential for highly charged emotions, and lack of time to establish a proper security plan for this booking, the city canceled the event. Now we understand that the organizers hoped to host a peaceful discussion and we are sorry for their disappointment. We will work with them to book a future event with appropriate security plans for large numbers of people. Torrance Cost continues. We've since been in touch with them. We went down to City Hall this morning and we met with the, uh, the manager, the city manager who made the decision. And essentially, we had to agree to disagree. There was no, uh, you know, that they know of or that they would tell us about. There was no threats uh, made against us, or, or at least they wouldn't share that with us. They cited the heated language. They cited the frustration, pain that forest workers are feeling as the reason to shut us down. And we kind of said, look, these conversations are always tense and emotional. Have security there if you wish. Uh, have police there if they wish. It's their venue. And shut it down if things call for it. But to shut it down preemptively, we think is a huge overstep. And we really I think the city needs to answer for this. The city manager said to us, you know, what would you do if someone stood up in the meeting and, and shouted or, or if someone really disagreed with you, you know, in a, in a, in a fiery, passionate way? And, and we just started laughing because that happens every time. Keep in mind, this, this wasn't our first rodeo. This would have been the 14th public event that we've held in Loggingtown in, on Vancouver Island, the third in Campbell River, the third at that exact venue. They all get heated. They all get tense. Has there been any conflicts in your other events? No, no, no. Again, I mean, it depends how you define conflict, right? I've been so nervous before some of them. I've been, I've been sick physically, but, you know, <laughs> I have a weak stomach and, uh, and I don't always uh, deal well with conflict. They get tense. They get heated. We have people stand up and call us liars. We have people stand up and say we're out to put them out of work and ruin their life. That's the level of distrust there is between the environmental movement and a lot of rural communities. And we're here to push back on that. We're here to improve that. You know, environmentalists don't want all forest workers out of work. We don't want to end logging. That's a misconception. We go to places like Campbell River to try to clear that up. As I was speaking with Torrance, a spokesperson with the Ministry of Forests, Lands, Natural Resource Operations, and Rural Development emailed me that on Vancouver Island, 50% of the harvest in the past five years has come from old growth, defined as stands that are older than 250 years. The actual harvest age of stands can vary from less than 50 years on the most productive sites on the coast to 140 years or more in the interior. She also wrote, Part of this government's mandate is to do things differently in the woods. We are working hard to provide more clarity 
on the land base and with consideration to employment and economic benefits and social, cultural and environmental values and the need to address climate change. A new thoughtful and measured approach to old growth management is now underway. As a start, we protected 54 of some of the province's largest trees, each surrounded by a one-hectare grove to act as a buffer zone. As new old-growth trees are identified, they will be added to the Big Tree Registry. Additionally, we have established an independent, two-person panel to engage with First Nations, industry, stakeholders, and communities on old-growth management. Members of the public will also be able to contribute to the discussion through the online engagement website at engage.gov.bc.ca slash oldgrowth. According to Jens Weiting of Sierra Club BC, On Vancouver Island, we are currently losing about 10,000 hectares of old-growth forest every year. That's more than 30 soccer fields every day. And how much remains depends on uh, whether you include all the so-called poor productivity old-growth forests in higher elevation. But a reasonable estimate, if you include all those ecosystems with relatively big trees, not too sparse, not too small, in other words, without counting high elevation forests where trees can hardly grow, we are looking at about uh, 20% remaining old growth compared to, to the original. And when you take a closer look at those forests that people really care about, the big tree ecosystems with trees as tall as skyscrapers and wide as your living room, that's when we have only tiny percentages left. So overall, uh, less than 10% for sure, looking at ecosystems with big old growth trees. And then when you take a closer look at specific ecosystems like Douglas fir old growth, then the numbers become really shocking because then you're looking at single digits and the Douglas fir ecosystem is a poster child for extremely endangered ecosystem because it's about 1% of the original old growth. But we still don't have a clear mechanism to protect endangered ecosystems with these very small percentages. According to David Elstone of the Truck Loggers Association, close to 48% of the province's annual cut comes from old-growth trees. What does this mean in terms of logging a decade or two from now? The number is about correct and it's very concerning because it shows that we are not on a sustainable path. We know there's very little old growth left and by continuing at this relatively stable rate to clear cut the remaining old growth means that everybody with a job in the forest industry must be very concerned about the future of his or her job. We need a transition plan. The government must act responsibly both for workers and for ecosystems and develop a phase-out plan. If we continue at this rate, the end will happen very abruptly. It will not allow uh, for the uh, logging industry to adjust to the new reality that they have to switch to a second-growth forest essentially overnight. The government has waited... uh, 
for a very long time previous governments have failed and the current government is not yet taking action but the longer they wait the more difficult it will become and it's really um, an incredible moral responsibility for the government to do the right thing for forestry jobs and for ecosystems and for the climate and we can only hope that they will look at the facts and act accordingly. David Chipway is coming to this problem from a different direction. I've been so focused on Cortez Wood and Cortez Forests that I don't really know much about the rest of the province anymore. Like, for instance, um, a quote according to David Elstone of the Truck Lockers, blah, blah, 48 of the province's annual cut comes from old growth. Well, that may be true, but, you know, there's a a region the size of a large European country up in northern BC that hasn't even been pillaged yet, Mm -hmm. right? But it's all northern, boreal, you know, subalpine, spruce, uh, you know, mostly Engelman and stuff like that. And yeah, it's old growth. And uh, yeah, the wood's nice. (laughs) I would build with it because it's light, strong, and doesn't rot, doesn't have sapwood in it, right? So it's um, it's one of those things every now and then you get a nice bunch of interior SPF to build with and it's really beautiful wood, you know? It's all very consistent and straight and strong. So tell me about the quality in older wood as opposed to uh, second growth, young second growth. Why is it better to have uh, old wood in terms of quality? Well, something happens to the wood itself as it ages in the tree. And I can say in cedar and, and fir, there's chemicals that grow stronger in the heartwood. So the, the tree converts all the sugars that are in the sapwood into other chemicals such as oils and terpenes and all of these things that preserve the heartwood. The tree's goal is to stay standing as long as possible. And the only way it's really going to do that is if it doesn't rot from within. And obviously has a good root system and doesn't get blown over and has thick bark so it doesn't get burned, right? So the tree is a perfectly designed organism for self-preservation. And yet A young tree doesn't have all of those characteristics. Its juvenile wood is very fast growing because the goal of the tree is to grow tall as soon as possible. So it's putting on fairly low density uh, cellular growth just to get up there, right? And then once it reaches its height, which is sort of determined by the environment and the overall forest surroundings, once it reaches that height, it tends not to grow any taller. So then it puts all of its energy into growing outward and stronger and bigger and you know more branch structure. And then it gets into reproduction with cones and, and all of that. All of that takes a tremendous amount of nutrients and energy, but that's its goal is to get up there and, and flower and reproduce and last as long as possible, right? Nearly all trees are like that. 
some trees don't last that long. Alders, you'd be amazed to find a, an alder over 75 years old on, on the coast. They tend to pass away before that or blow over or uh, get choked out by other species. Their function in a way would be to uh, colonize disturbed ground, uh, store nitrogen, and actually leave something for the next species that's going to take over. So that's, uh, red alder is amazing at that, like it fixes nitrogen in the soil. Uh, European foresters would give their eye teeth to have red alder in the European forest. They don't have a nitrogen-fixing tree species that will restore the fertility of the soil. Certainly not as good as red alder does. It's about the best in the world of temperate trees at doing that. Sometimes when I'm chopping firewood, there's this outer ring of sapwood which can be so wet it's actually splashed me once. Yeah. And inside of it I have all this dry, tight grain stuff. Can, do you want to tell me the difference between those two? The sapwood is the nutrient uh, highway for the tree. It, it's uh, both stuff going up and down. It's the living part of the tree's wood mass, and so it's conducting nutrients from the root system up to the canopy, and it's also taking the products of photosynthesis and returning that, feeding the roots so that they can grow. So it's a two-way street, and the sapwood is really all that's doing it. The heartwood is essentially dead wood. It's no longer doing that transportation, and its primary goal is structure and uh, longevity. So then all the water that the tree needs is in the sapwood layer. It can store moisture in the heartwood, and you'll see that in other species. For instance, uh, Arbutus stores a lot of water throughout its whole tree, and because of its cell structure, is able to transport water horizontally out to the outer part of the tree and use it. So it'll, it'll hold water in the whole tree to get through that long summer drought on a rock bluff and survive. And if it runs out of water, it'll dry and die. So the more water that a, a tree can store, if it's in a dry site, the better. And the other way that trees hang on to water is to produce resins that prevent evaporation through the leaf surfaces or through the bark. So all these trees that produce a lot of resin are trying to hold on to their summer water, as well as the, the resins are, are preservatives for the tree. Yeah. Now, speaking as a builder, would you rather have boards that are uh, have a large quantity of sapwood or straight heartwood and how many years do you need to get the logs that are primarily heartwood? You probably need a hundred years. I mean, yeah, obviously I would want uh, wood that's heartwood. It, it's a nicer color. It's going to last longer than anything that I make. Sometimes you can use a mix of heartwood and sapwood for visual effects but only indoors where it's going to stay dry. So it can be used as a visual feature in cabinetry or something because it's kind of interesting to have the two colors. But if you're building a house and building outdoor stuff, 
you want to just stay away from sapwood altogether. It's it's only got a few years and it's rotted, right? Like if you build a sun deck that's got any sapwood in the cedar, that that wood is rotten within five years. You'll also find that in in fast growing red cedar, second growth, that the even the heartwood, because it's so low density and it doesn't have the oils of an old tree that the second growth decking doesn't last very long either. You're lucky to get 15 to 20 years. I keep on hearing about cut rates of between, uh, or harvest cycles, I guess you'd call them, of between 50 and 80 years. What does that mean in terms of heartwood and sapwood? It means that Probably half of the wood that is being scaled and sold as volume is sapwood. That's about the ratio you get in an 80-year-old tree. It's 50%. Uh, you know, you might vary. It might be from 40 to 70% heartwood. But, uh, you know, um, obviously the older the tree, the, the smaller the sapwood layer is. The whole trick, it's kind of like growing anything. You kind of want to harvest it when it's at its um, best. You know, you wouldn't want to harvest grapes before they're sweet. You wouldn't want to harvest corn before it's ready to pick. You wouldn't want to harvest your pumpkins when they were the size of tennis balls. You have to wait until the product that you're trying to grow is of a quality that what the, the market wants. The trouble is that the market is so diverse now that quality has almost gone out the window. It's like the Chinese will buy our sapwood. So I don't know what they're doing with it. Probably using it for formwood that's a temporary use uh, for concrete forms and then it's just burned. It's not a product that's going to endure. So. When they're buying our young trees, they're not making products out of them that are going to be around for very long. And there's very little local market for all this young stuff that's getting harvested because anybody in their right mind can see that these young trees don't make good lumber. According to the Ministry of Forestry spokesperson, BC's forest sector employed about 54,100 people in 2018. This sector includes forestry and logging and support activities, wood products manufacturing, pulp and paper products manufacturing. So it is unsurprising that the BC government is very concerned about the current forestry jobs crisis. Dozens of mills have closed and hundreds of jobs have been lost, but we know that the ecological crisis is related to the economic crisis because logging corporations have made it a priority to log as much as possible in the short term, and they've not acted to ensure a sustainable wood supply and ecological integrity. So based on this trajectory, it's, it is not really a surprise that uh, there is less timber left today than a few decades ago. And there is an opportunity in this crisis. We still can shift to forestry with more jobs per cubic meter and less damage. The BC government must bring back the mechanisms to ensure that when trees get logged in BC, that they are also processed here. 
the government must phase out raw log exports and we should support the forestry sector to make a real shift where we can actually have wood products without destroying the forest. The government is talking a lot about more efficient use of the fiber and not allowing wood waste, but all they are thinking about right now is how to remove all the waste and make sure that we use it for for energy or some other alternative use. But instead, we need forestry that focuses on those trees that are really needed for wood products and make sure that those trees that are not wanted remain standing and continue to sequester carbon. This is of, of paramount importance. We have scientists that are trying to inventing mechanisms to sequester carbon, but we already have trees. And the value of trees to sequester carbon cannot be underestimated. And currently there's no policy to ensure that we keep as many trees as possible standing. This will cost money. It will make it more jobs intensive to manage forests. We have to restore government capacity for research, for monitoring and enforcement and to really have boots on the ground to understand what is happening both in terms of forestry, understand the impacts, monitoring of ecological integrity and make the forestry changes to ensure that we can still have forests and clean water, clean air and a stable climate. David Chipway has some chilling revelations for anyone who believes the answer is simply to ban logging old-growth forests and concentrate on second growth. To put even more pressure on logging the second growth in order to save the old growth, it's kind of nuts because the, the second growth is already being over-harvested. The rate of harvest in the second growth is too fast. It's being cut too young and we're actually going to run out of second growth. <laughs> so we're already cutting third growth on Vancouver Island at 40 years of age, for instance, uh, because the second growth is gone. These are trees that I planted, probably. Teal Jones, uh, which is a big license holder on the South Island, they curtailed their second growth operations in the spring. And Mosaic, they're primarily into second and third growth, and they curtailed all operations just last week. And both cited market conditions. Torrance Cost referred to the current logging crisis in terms of exhausting marketable timber stocks. There always has been and there always will be a market for valuable products. So if the market is, can't support their operations, it means the products they have left, the trees in the forest that they manage, if there's no market for them, it means they're of low value. And the only reason for that is because of the way they've been managed. They've been managed for volume, not for value, for decades. And now the crows are coming home to roost. If we're running out of second growth too... It sounds pretty bleak. Yeah, I think so. I think the rate of cuts always been too high. We logged the old growth thinking it was decadent, and that was the excuse. It was decadent and overmature, and if we didn't cut it now, it was just going to go downhill. I don't think we ever really appreciated that the old growth forests are irreplaceable in human lifetimes. 
Chen's Weiting agrees. The old growth forests we still have in British Columbia will not grow back as we know them. Number one, because of climate change, which makes it really difficult for intact ecosystems to regenerate naturally. And secondly, because most of these forests are cut again after a few decades. In many cases, the um, rotation rate is now down to 60 years. Many trees are cut again when they are 80 years. But generally, we don't see forests allowed to grow older than 80 years in British Columbia. So much less older than 100 years when some of the most important old growth features would show again, uh, such as trees big enough to allow woodpeckers to find a home and, and many other species that depend on older, bigger trees. There's no commitment long-term politically to growing forests long enough to um, replace them. So when we ran out of old growth on the coast, for instance, and uh, you know, suddenly there was everything that was left was really hard to get to and very expensive logging, you know. I mean, they can heli-log up in the mountains where they can't build a road now, so they can still get at it. But it's pretty carbon-intensive forestry. This touches upon another problem. Are Vancouver Island's forests still emitting rather than storing carbon? Yeah, unfortunately, the carbon loss from BC's forest is growing worse and worse every year. This is now a combination of destructive logging practices combined with worsening climate impacts. So we took a closer look at the carbon loss across BC a few years ago when we had for the first time a full 10-year period when BC's forests, instead of helping us in the fight against climate change and absorbing more carbon than what they release, they, they had become a carbon source. We have to assume that for thousands of years, BC's forests absorbed more carbon compared to what they release. They store carbon in soils, they accumulate more and more carbon, particularly in old-growth forests, over time. But again, as a result of destructive logging, we have consistently more than 40 million tons of carbon emissions. And this is not necessary, because we could selectively log trees without destroying the whole ecosystem and moving it back to square one. And we are also now looking at a climate emergency where we also have foregone sequestration by cutting down trees before they get older. We are not allowing them to get to the point where they can really sequester most of the carbon. New science shows that trees absorb most of the carbon in the second half of their lives. And we are not allowing trees to grow that old. And that means that we, we have a lot of loss of sequestration. And now we have a lot of fire. In the first decade of the 2000s, we had the, the mountain pine beetle that uh, killed many trees and um, reduced the amount of sequestration. And now we have significant fires in 2017, 2018. And These emissions combined are now three times greater 
then our official emissions, those emissions that are primarily related to burning fossil fuels, and it's a huge concern that the BC government is not counting these forest emissions, which means that there's very little awareness how big these emissions have grown and hardly any meaningful discussion about what we really have to do to hold on to as much carbon as possible that currently remains stored in forest. Instead, we, we look at ongoing clear-cut logging, even of the most endangered carbon-rich old-growth forests. But the, the industry had a hard time slowing down. It was used to a certain scale of activity. So as soon as there was second growth to harvest, it just kept going, you know. And right now you can look on the coast and you can see second growth being harvested at a, you know, an extremely high rate, overcutting, especially on the private land where there's very little uh, cut control. So if you look at the satellite imagery of uh, the former ENN lands that are all private forestry, um, it's in pretty sad shape. I think the merger of Timber West and Island Timberlands into this new mosaic group is a sign that there isn't enough timber out there for two companies anymore. David Shipwaite wrote some of his observations about wood quality in an essay called Quality Forestry Always Takes Time, which he allowed me to republish on Cortez Currents. When I first wrote um, this essay on Quality Always Takes Time, I, I was driven to do so because I, I didn't see anywhere that this issue of the ratio between heartwood and sapwood was being discussed, uh, certainly in younger forests. And yet, I you know, everybody locally knows it. It's not any mystery that younger trees have more sapwood, right? But uh, so then I, you know, I wrote this and I was trying to just get it out there and see what foresters thought of it. Ultimately, if if foresters don't understand this issue, then what are they growing trees for? And I sent a copy of the essay to a forester in Campbell River that I, I, I knew, and he came back with a, a reply that kind of floored me. He said, well, maybe we should create woodworker tree patches in the forest. And I thought, that's an odd term. And then, so he was he was thinking of like just like a wildlife tree patch that you leave in a forest to take care of endangered species, woodpeckers, owls, whatever. So you create a wildlife tree patch because maybe there's a nesting bird in this tree and you give it a little bit of protection, right? So he was suggesting that they do the same for woodworkers. In other words, woodworkers are an endangered species. Think about that. Here's forestry that's growing wood. The goal is to grow wood for woodworking. And yet, the kind of wood that woodworkers want to use, want to work with, is becoming extinct. We aren't running out of wood, but we're running out of the kind of wood that is good to work with. And so woodworkers are, in, are an endangered species. And, and this forester's solution was to create woodworker tree patches so that at least the woodworkers would not go extinct. 
<laughs> What's the rest of the wood they're harvesting? Toilet paper? <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. What are we growing trees for? You know, yeah, it, it, it's that fiber mentality. They talk about wood as fiber, volume of fiber. So then it's just a feed product for the industrial processes that make paper, toilet paper, uh, ground up, fiberboard, all of this kind of stuff, right? And um, maybe in that world, quality of wood isn't so important. Most of those products are not going to be around for a very long time. And they certainly aren't going to sequester carbon. <laughs> <laughs> if our goal is to grow good wood that can sequester carbon and also grow forests that can sequester carbon in the ecosystem, then we have to get into longer rotations. There's no way around it. What kind of a rotation are you talking about? I would like to see 130. When I realized that fir trees at 130 are still actually gaining in incremental growth, it just tells me that our idea that second growth is mature at 80 is kind of an industrial myth that we've been led to believe, but it's wrong. What would be the ideal be? Isn't it a lot higher than 130? Well, technically, forests become old growth at 250 on the coast here. I honestly don't think we have the capacity to think that long. 250 years from now, that's, you know, what, 2260, 2270. There's a lot of people in the world that don't think that the human race is going to last another 20 years. <laughs> but, you know, you have to sort of act as if we are going to be around for a long time and that things are going to get better and that our way of using natural resources is going to improve. So you kind of have to commit to the long term, even if there's doubt about how well it's going to play out. But um, if, if we can't make wood products that last, then there's almost no hope for the forest because think about it, everything needs replacing. So you build a house out of sappy wood, it gets eaten up by bugs, you burn it down and build another one. How many houses are you going to build in your lifetime, right? And what's the toll on the forest for all that? So the key is to make wood products that last a long time, and then you've got forest conservation. So look at it from the other way around. We're always trying to save the forest, but we aren't saving the value that we put in wood, in, in good quality wood artifacts. And I think they, they have to go together. In other words, we should have old growth forestry as an intent and a goal. It's not like, oh, we save our old growth forests and then we just log the younger ones. Because the younger ones are crap. We have to grow a replacement for old growth forests and maintain the attributes of old growth in the active forestry landscape. So you start to get those attributes in second growth forests, probably 80 to 100 years, you start to get all the um, arboreal epiphytes, you start to get all the other species in the stand that are associated with old growth forests. Right? 
And so that's what we should be aiming for. But if we're cutting, even at 130 years, especially the way that they're going through the forests, doesn't that almost guarantee that we'll never get the 250-year-old trees? Probably, yeah. Unless we actually create old-growth reserves that are younger now, but will grow into those older trees over time. I mean, we do have a lot of protected areas that are old growth on the coast. And forests tend to burn less on the coast than they do up in the interior. And yet they found that older forests are also more fire resistant just because of the structure of the forest. It doesn't facilitate crown fires as, as much as younger forests do. Sierra Club BC is more involved with the politics of this debate, so I asked Jens Viting, is the NDP government treating this issue any differently than the BC Liberals did? There's no um, meaningful difference at this point in time. The BC government has taken small steps into the right direction in terms of bringing back a greater level of control, they implemented two of more than 100 recommendations from the Professional Reliance Report, which can result in more oversight. They have also now initiated a review and asked for input to make changes in BC's most important forestry law, the Forest Range Practices Act. So the deadline ended in July. Right now the government is reviewing input and making decisions about what type of changes they want to make. But we are not holding our breath. We are very nervous, in fact, that they are not preparing the needed changes in light of, of the uh, ecological and climate crisis. So particularly looking at old growth forests, we are concerned because two days after ending the input process for the forestry laws, they started a new process. They um, established an old growth panel, which is currently visiting communities and asking British Columbians for input. And it's really concerning that the government is starting a new process without letting us know what steps they will take in terms of all the things they already heard. So Sierra Club BC, many other environmental organizations, thousands of British Columbians have told the BC government that they want to see old growth protected. Instead, the government has started a new process. So this could quickly become a talk and log situation, there's still a possibility for the BC government to make sure that in early 2020, when we find out about the actual changes in, in the forestry law, to include bold change for old growth, for a paradigm shift to manage forests based on ecosystem science instead of uh, a priority on timber supply, and um, really making sure that we can maintain and restore a carbon sink and have forests that are actually helping in the fight against climate change. Right now, this is very uncertain. The minister is uh, in Asia promoting BC's forest industry. I want to make sure that the uh, countries that are buying products from BC are assured that 
everything is well in BC's forest, which is not true. And that shows where his current priorities are. We we need a lot of more pressure on the BC government to take action in the in the coming months because we are in an emergency and the government is not acting uh, like in, in an emergency. Cortez Community Forest has only been operational for six years, but is already a model of how we might be able to manage our forests in a more sustainable manner. In a previous interview, one of the directors told me that their harvest rate is currently between 250 and 350 years. As most of the trees on Cortez Island are already at least 80 years old, and some of them are actually old growth, our descendants may see a partial restoration of the old-growth forests that once covered the coast of British Columbia. There are two weaknesses with this forestry model. Our tenure comes from the Ministry of Forests, who could demand the cut rate be increased. Also, 68% of Cortez Island is privately owned, and thus outside of the community forest management area. It is 4 a.m. on the morning that this story airs, and I see that Pam Agnew, Communications Manager for Mosaic Forest Management, the Timberland Manager for Timberland West and Island Timberlands, sent me an email. She says, We are currently experiencing very challenging pricing and market conditions. As a result, we are shutting down earlier, ahead of a usual winter shutdown. We are monitoring the situation closely and look forward to restarting production when the market outlook improves. The temporary curtailment impacts contractors, both union and non-union workers, approximately 2,000 people across the coast. On Monday, November 25, 2019, we began an orderly shutdown of production, but we'll continue with our planning and silviculture efforts to ensure that we are ready to resume harvesting when the market outlook improves. I want to end this story with a message from... You know, I've been repeating this with, with various media today. We plan to start out last night by extending our sympathies to the workers and families impacted by the ongoing strike and, and certainly the most recently announced curtailment. This sucks, but those workers are going through. We hope they get through it. And uh, we wanted to talk about sustainability in the industry. We wanted to hear their perspectives and learn from them. And uh, we're really committed to working with the city of Campbell River to, to get back up and, and, and have that discussion. You've been listening to interviews with Torrance Cost of the Wilderness Committee, Ron Bowles from the city of Campbell River, a spokesperson from BC's Ministry of Forests, Jens Viting from Sierra Club BC, Pam Agnew, Communications Manager for Mosaic Forest Management, and David Shipway from the Cortez Community Forest Cooperative about the crisis in our forests. This is Roy Hales with Cortez Currents. Goodbye. Keep my feet on the road to love in this life. You gotta think for yourself.